Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from downtown Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we listen to God's word from the book of Psalms. We pray the Lord will show us how we are to rejoice, wrestle, and worship him in all circumstances. Thank you so much, Katie and team, for leading us in that. Worship to Jesus is beautiful and uh, thankful to get us going on that this morning here. Um, my name is Derek Hebert. My family and I here have been part of Rev for a couple years now, and we live out in southwest Boise and uh, part of a gospel community out there. And so I get to serve every so often through teaching and preaching and very grateful to do that. Um, this is a first for me today in terms of preaching in shorts. Hope you guys don't mind. It happens to be the surface of the sun out there. So we're going to try to air out a little bit. And um, Bren was preaching in shorts, I think, last week. So I got clearance. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, if the pastor's going to do it, then I'll do it. Actually, I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, um, the true Pacific Northwest. So Seattle, Portland, over on that side of the mountains. Um, and uh, it's very uh, temperate there. And uh, we get maybe one day out of the year in the 90s, so we're always in pants, sweatshirts. Anyway, hope you guys hope you guys don't mind if I'm in shorts. So um, today we're going to do something maybe a little bit different than normal. We're going to do an overview of the Book of Psalms. Uh, Bren had asked me to do that, and I said, "Well, I'll try my hardest to not make it into a seminary uh, lecture." Um, so we're gonna we're gonna do kind of a flyover of the of the Book of Psalms, and then. We're also going to focus on uh, Psalm 13. We're going to focus on a specific psalm that I think is really important to understanding the book as a whole. Um, Brian Rome, who preached maybe four or five weeks ago or so, and he did he focused on Psalm 1, um, and then also did a little bit of an overview as well, so you can get some more context if you listen to that sermon. Um, by the way, too, I just, I just noticed that there's a youth here. Her name is Psalm, and so... She is our, our youth-branded sponsor uh, for this sermon this morning. This is brought to you by Psalm Boston and uh, her namesake. And then, yeah, so sorry, Psalm, I didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get copyright from you before the, the, the sermon on that. I, was, I meant to, and then I just forgot. So anyway, <laughs> you can sue me later if you want. Um, <clears throat> all right. So we're going to start out with this. So there's, in terms of Psalms, there's a lot of, uh, Psalms is all poetry. And uh, there is still poem, there's still a lot of poetry being written today. If it's not in music, uh, if it's not in other kinds of lyric, it's just, you know, in written uh, poetry. And so there was this great poem that was written um, by a lady named Maggie Smith about five years ago, six years ago, in 2016. It went viral all over the internet. Um, And it's called Good Bones. And so I want to start out with this because we're going to look at this just for a second. And this is what she writes. She writes, <laughs> she wrote, she did, she did write. Uh, she says, life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways, a thousand deliciously ill-advised ways that I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you. 
do I keep this from my children? I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real heap chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. This is an example of what we might call a lament poem. A lament poem is one that's just real honest about hard situations in life and suffering and brokenness in the world and um, loss and then grieving that brokenness. And Smith even goes further and she even just mentions kind of her own brokenness, right? The, 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 the ways that she has shortened her life, deliciously ill-advised ways. And then she goes on to try to provide a solution. You know, how do we fix that? The solution to a broken world. Because in her mind, in her view, the world is still good. It has good bones. But how can, you know, but we can make it beautiful in some way. And in a sense, I, I appreciate some things about Smith and the realism in her poem. You know, there's a lot of poet, poets these days, especially who paint a very genuine picture of the world, and often it's brutally honest. And we'll often see that in pop culture and film and music. Um, and in fact, the Bible is painfully honest about the world, right? And I appreciate that Smith has a desire to protect yet help her children experience the world and even her vision to help make the world beautiful and free of that brokenness. But there's a problem to it, and this is, what it, this is where I would disagree. And the question is when. When has human strength, when has human will and ingenuity ever worked to solve the world's problems? I mean, if, if evolution is correct, you would think that we should have fixed ourselves by now and elevated to some higher form of life. Or that placing the solution on broken humanity to fix broken humanity, if Smith is saying that the world is broken and I'm broken and we're all broken, if the solution is then to take broken people to fix broken people, that just seems illogical, right? It seems backwards. That doesn't seem realistic, impractical. It's like taking a broken tool and trying to use that broken tool to fix a broken appliance. I mean, how does that work? Smith herself even admits that she's contributed to the problem. So when has human strength ever accomplished that? When will it work to even fix the world in a way that is sustainable? We often find temporary solutions. We find, we find little, little things that might fix the problem, but really it ultimately is, is Band-Aids to deeper issues. It's not sustainable. And then finally, when will we all come together and agree on the best way to do it? Because we live in such a divided nation right now, and that's just one nation in the world. So while I can appreciate some things about Smith and her sentiment and her emotions and her desire to want to, to both, you know, be honest about what's going, the brokenness of life and, and people who would break you and things like that. Uh, I, I don't think that her vision of looking at the world as a, just essentially a good place that we just need to spice up and make beautiful again, uh, would work. So, I propose, and the Bible proposes, in fact, the book of Psalms proposes a different view that comes out of the poetry here in this book, that the picture of the world is realistic, it is honest, it is real, it's genuine, it's not, it's not candy-coated, it's not, it's, it's not a rosy picture, but the solution to that problem, to that brokenness, is fundamentally different than Smith's and many others. And that our emotional response to that anyway, our response can be raw and authentic and based on strong hope. So the truth and uh, the main truth that we're going to look at this morning is that uh, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, tell a story 
beginning with lament and ending with praise of how Jesus the Messiah, despite his own suffering, will be victorious over evil and save a broken world. This book, the Psalms, that's full of these, po- these poems, tells a story that begins with lament and grieving and ends with praise of how Jesus the Messiah, despite suffering, will be victorious over evil and save the world. Okay, So we're going to look specifically at Psalm 13 as we do that overview and look, look in there uh, especially. So if you have your Bible, open to Psalm 13, 13th Psalm in the book of Psalms. I'm going to read from that. This is a Psalm of David, and it says this. I'm going to read actually the, the superscription, okay? Psalm 13 to the choir master, a Psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let me just pray for a sec. Father, we recognize that we need your help this morning to hear correctly, to listen well, to learn well. By the help of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would. And I ask that our, our thoughts, our feelings uh, would be in line with what you have for us. That you would meet each of us where we're at. And I ask that your word would speak powerfully and would do its work in our hearts uh, right now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Psalms tell a story of the Messiah's suffering and victory. Um, generally speaking, the most, oft, most often the perspective on the Psalms is that it's an anthology. It's a collection of a bunch of, bunch of poems. And those poems have a bunch of different genres, which we'll get into here in a second. But... Um, these poems are all kind of, they're grouped together in certain categories. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with just looking at the book of Psalms as an anthology. And that is that there's really no consistent organization of the categories. The Psalms are just kind of all interspersed, the, po- the poems are all interspersed throughout with different genres. And each book, in fact, the book of, the book of Psalms is, is divided up into five books. Each of those books has multiple genres throughout. So seeing it as an anthology that would normally have some categories, have some order to it, doesn't actually work the best. So other scholars have discovered that there's actually a story. There's like a, a narrative arc. There's a plot line throughout the whole book of Psalms that tells a story. Okay, And in that story, we see a lot of King David. King David is looked at as the ideal king throughout the Old Testament. Uh, he was not the perfect king. He was not sinless. He had sin. He was broken. He had issues. He did, some, he did some pretty crazy sinful stuff. But he's looked at, especially after his death, as the most ideal king. And in Israel and the Old Testament, like, if we can just get back to that, it, and yet the Messiah will be in a great place. And so when you go through the book of Psalms, anytime you see David's name, uh, it's pointing ahead to the Messiah. It's pointing ahead to the true King David, the true, the true and perfect Messiah. So in books one and two, as we normally see in any story, in any movie, 
there's going to be conflict. And King David, or the Messiah, battles opposition and suffering. That's the first two books of the book of Psalms. So like in Psalm 2, for example, it says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, against his Messiah. So you have this initial conflict with King David battling, uh, and even the Messiah, especially the Messiah, battling opposition and suffering. And then it kind of builds to, like in any story, it builds to a crisis moment, a climactic moment. And that crisis is like the, king, the kingship of David is lost. The hope of Messiah is in question. Psalm 89 speaks to this a little bit, but you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your anointed one, you have renounced the covenant with your servant, have defiled his crown in the dust. So there's a real deep crisis there. And then, it doesn't just stay there, it moves on to book four of the Psalms, there's a solution, okay? There's a, there's a fix to that problem, and that solution is that God still reigns as king, and his actions in the past provide the basis for future hope. Psalm 93 says that the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Now, it's really important that you understand that looking at God's actions in the past and what he's done in the past provides the basis for future hope. So, so much of the Old Testament, in fact, all of the Bible, always looks back to what God has already done in the past, whether it be through the patriarchs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Noah, whether it be through David, whether it be through the kings, and especially through the covenant, whether it be through the Exodus, God has time and again demonstrated his faithfulness, his grace, his goodness, and his power, so that when times are tough and it feels like everything is lost, the kingship is lost, uh, the temple is lost, the, the law is lost, the Torah, all of that, they still look back. We still look back to, okay, what has God done in the past? What has he shown how has he proven himself? That gives us the basis to have hope for the future, to anticipate for the future. That's the solution. And then out of that, then, what is our response? And so then you have the final book of the book of Psalms, book five, which is praise and thanksgiving in anticipation of God's future salvation. And Psalm 136 says, this classic psalm, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures. And it's, it's constantly just that refrain over and over again. His steadfast love, his faithful love endures forever and ever. And the rest of that psalm just talks about what he did in the past and looking ahead to the future. So do you see how this story works itself out throughout the psalms? Now, that's a micro, that's a very macro level. If you just every so often kind of thumb through the Psalms, you're kind of like, okay, I'll read Psalm 21 today, and then next week I'll read Psalm 89 or whatever. You may not get that. You have to spend a lot of time in this book to understand how these poems are weaved together to create the story, but it's there. And it's there to bring hope. So David, in a sense, just like Moses wrote his five books, the Pentateuch or the Torah, his five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, David is writing his five books. Even though not all of these poems are by David, some are actually by Moses and a few others by um, Asaph and a couple other guys that helped to lead the temple worship. Uh, these five books are, like, are also a story. So in some ways, it's like you get this epic story throughout this poetry. Like if you, if you took English classes in college, maybe you read John Milton's Paradise Lost. Okay, It's like an epic poem that that tells the story of Adam and Eve and creation and all that. 
in this same way that David is doing that with the book of Psalms. So we see this story of David as in the Messiah, looking ahead to the Messiah who achieves victory over sin and over evil and over brokenness in the world, even, even in the midst of his own suffering, despite his own suffering, he still wins and he brings salvation. Okay, that's the first part to our truth today. The second is that Psalms begin with lament and end with praise. Now, like I said, there's multiple genres throughout this book. One of those is like wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom in the book of Psalms. Uh, there's imprecatory, which is a really kind of intense and difficult poem, which is basically calling down and wishing uh, su- uh, suffering and judgment and punishment on enemies. Okay, we don't have time to go into that today. Frankly, I was a little scared to even go into that. So we're going to focus on lament, but that's another piece to the book of Psalms. There's not a ton of those Psalms, the imprecatory Psalms, uh, but they're in there. Another Psalm, of course, is praise and thanksgiving. And then, of course, we have lament. So what is lament? Let's talk about that for a second. Lament, when we think about lament, you just need to think about grieving and sadness. Grieving and mourning over what has been lost in your life which is very real because we all have those losses. Grieving and mourning over hurt, over pain, whether that's physical, emotional, relational, over the suffering that comes out of that. There's a lot of grief, there's sadness, there's sorrow. That's what lament is all about. And we do this all the time. We lament about things all the time. Probably every week, if not a lot of our days, every day. Now, we have our first world problems, right? Long lines for gas at Costco because we're trying to save 15 cents a gallon, right? Uh, traffic on Eagle Road, which if you, come, if you lived in Seattle for as long as I have, there's no traffic here, guys. Sorry. Stop complaining. Um, car problems. We recently had a car issue that a friend of mine was able to fix, thankfully, but car problems. It's like, I took it to the mechanic, and he wants to charge me thousands of dollars to rebuild the transmission, and I'm like, well, we've had three of these cars so far, and this is the first time this has ever happened for this much mileage, and can you think of any reason why this is happening to this transmission? He's like, it just happens to happen. (laughs) It just happens to happen. It's a broken world. All right, thanks. It's totally... Totally helps, right? Totally helps. It just happens to happen. I don't have any other reason. It just, it just does. Cars break. Weather, the heat wave. We, we lament the heat. We lament another season that our favorite sports team is not going to make the playoffs. All right, so first world problems. And then you have global, third world, deeper problems or widespread injustices that even we experience in this nation that are lamentable, that we grieve Abortion, racism, human trafficking. And then we have personal problems, which those are probably the most, those cut really, really uh, individually and personally for us, right? The problems going on in our families, the problems that we have in marriage, in our marriages, the problems that we have in our own churches, in our own church but especially those family problems and the pain that we go through and the frustration and the the anguish and all the emotions that come out of that. You see, the Bible is very honest and real about lament. In fact, there's a whole book named after it. It's called Lamentations. It's there in the Old Testament. It's the prophet Jeremiah who is grieving the loss of his nation 
and being carried away by another evil nation and becoming refugees. He is, he is writing this whole poem full of lament. The Psalms of Lament give us a way to both understand and respond to the brokenness of the world. And in fact, here's the good thing, is that there is a movement, as we see in the story of David slash Messiah, beginning with conflict and suffering and moving towards victory and hope, that the book of Psalms begins with lament and then it ends with praise. It begins with hard, intense, difficult emotions, and it ends with joy. And it ends with happiness. And it ends with peace. Psalm 30 is a great example of this because it has a couple of verses that really speak to that. Some of you have heard these verses before. Weeping may last for the night. For the night. Weeping may tarry for the night, but what comes in the morning? Joy. Joy comes with the morning. On in verse 11 of Psalm 30, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So there's this whole movement of lament and sadness and grief because of suffering, because of conflict, that moves towards hope, that moves towards joy and praise. And in fact, if you, under, if you know what the whole story of the Bible is about, we even see that through the whole story of lament and grief and sadness because of sin, moving towards joy because of restoration, because of God and his salvation and what he's done. So let's dig a little bit deeper here into lament. Why lament, though? Why these poems? What's the payoff for reading and studying lament poems and lament psalms? Two things. Psalms of lament help us respond to a couple important questions here. First one is that, um, what do we do with suffering and hurts and conflicts? What do we do with our suffering? What do we do with those hurts and conflicts that we experience? Well, the key is that we cry out to God with honesty and hope. We cry out to God with honesty and hope. And how do we do that? When we look at Psalm 13 here specifically, it gives us a structure. It gives you kind of a plan on how to do that. Okay, there's an anatomy here to this, and this is pretty. This is fairly uh, um, uh, fairly consistent throughout most of the lament poems, and it begins with an opening cry. So, if we go to that anatomy of a lament poem, there, an opening cry in verses one and two, and I'll dig it. I'll dig it a little bit deeper into each one of these. It says, "How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I take counsel in my soul?" And then it moves to a description of circumstance. It means it moves to a verbalizing of your situation. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then it goes to a petition or ask or a request for God to save. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And then out of that petition then comes confidence in God to save. Verse 5, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And then finally, um, a commitment to praise and a hymn. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So this anatomy is pretty common to most of the lament poems, right? And this is a way that we can respond through prayer, through whatever means, that we cry out to God with honesty and hope in the midst of our conflict, in the midst of our, our suffering and our hardship. Let's look at these a little bit more specifically here. That first part, crying out to God, this opening cry of how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
And notice that he says that four times there. David, David writes that. How long? How long? How long? How long? You know, there's those seasons in our lives, I think, where it's almost like that's the only thing we feel like we can say. Lord, how long is this going to go on? How long do I have to continue to endure this thing in this relationship or this friendship that I have? How long do I have to continue to see my family go through this? How long do I have to continue to endure this suffering, this this pain, this disease, this physical ailment, this illness, this condition? How long? It's very real. And David is being real here. These long seasons of anguish and turmoil and frustration and hurt. And you think of those times that you've cried out to God, Lord, how long? <laughs> Maybe it wasn't those specific words, but you're, that's what you're feeling. That's what your heart is doing. How long must this happen? How long must I continue to have to go through this and experience this? Why? See, it's okay to ask that. It's okay to cry out to God and be honest about that. We've been going through the story of Joseph in Genesis and I'm honestly quite surprised that maybe Joseph didn't have a psalm that was a poem maybe that he wrote that was saved for posterity here in this book um, because of the, the anguish and the, and the how longness that he had to go through in Egypt, enslaved, and all the ups and downs that he experienced. And just when he thought he was going to get out of prison, he has to do two more years even after he helped that, uh, the cupbearer and the baker right? How long? You see, in this, we we learn something about the patience of God, that he is both patient with us and the world, right? Like, in our suffering, we don't want him to be patient. God, please hurry, just fix my situation right now. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm sick and tired, tired and sick. I, I need you to come through right now and fix this and I'm hurting and for some reason God is is patient there's something that he is patient about in that like please hurry and fix this like wouldn't it be nice if there was some app that we could download on our phone and just like boom magic everything's everything's good just you know set up the subscription I'm good I've got my app I've got everything's good right God's like nope I've got a plan You see, even in our sin, oftentimes in our sin, we want him to be patient with us. But then we look at the sin of others, and we're like, no, no, like, you don't need to be patient with them. You need to fix them right now. But for me, I, take your time with me, please, God. Right? I'm still working, I'm still in process, I'm working through this. See, we learn something about the patience of God. He's both patient with us and even our enemies and even the world. So we cry out to God, and then we have a description of our situation. And here's where I really want to encourage us to be verbal with God, to be honest, and to, and to speak the language that is actually in our hearts to him. Verbalize your situation to God. Define the reality. The thing is, he already knows the reality. He wants you to confess. He wants you to verbalize it. Like He wants you to talk to him about it in all the nitty-gritty, in all the rawness of it. 
right? In all the intensity of it, speak to him. Verbalize it to him. Look at what David, look at what he says here. How long must I take counsel when my soul have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? David's like saying, God, why, why does my enemy continue to get to do this? Why do they continue to be able to oppress me? Why do they continue to get to be over me or bring this conflict and this suffering in my life? Why do you allow it? Why do you seemingly allow it? Right? How honest he's being here. And maybe, maybe in this, his theology isn't all intact, and he's like, I can't even think about your sovereignty right now because this is my situation. But he's verbalizing it. He's bringing it before God. He's saying, God, this is what is real to me right now. This is what is real. And by the way, whenever the Psalms talk about an enemy here, it's not just a person, it's not just a human being or a group of people. An enemy can be anything that goes against God's good creation. It could be systemic injustice and evil. It can be disease. It can be illness and condition because all of that is not what God intended as part of his good creation. Cancer was never intended to be a part of God's good creation from the beginning. It was brought into the world because of the parasite of sin. Okay? When I used to serve in youth ministry way back at another church in Washington, there was a dad who um, voluntarily served with the group, and he uh, eventually uh, was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And so with Lou Gehrig's disease, it's, it eventually just um, um, destroys your muscle, destroys kind of your nervous system and all that. And so at the beginning of stages when he wasn't able to, um, when he started to lose movement and muscle ability in his arms and his hands, he was a mechanic, by the way, too, so he, um, um, that was a huge loss for him. He had to stop working. Um, I pointed him to Psalm 13, and I said that your enemy here is Lou Gehrig's disease. God never intended this disease to be in the world. It never intended, he never intended this disease to attack human beings and to break down your body this way. So you can view your enemy as this disease even as your body is breaking down and you're suffering. And in Psalm 13 here, it just changed his whole outlook. Not that his whole, his whole focus was all on his disease, but that he was able to find a basis for hope. And I began to talk to them about the resurrection, that one day your body's going to be perfect and eternal through Jesus in the end. So we cry out to God, we describe to him our circumstances, we're honest to him about our situation, we verbalize it, and then we petition him, we ask him to bring salvation. We draw near to him in that. Look at what David says in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Yahweh, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. One of the things that is really important about the Psalms and especially in lament, and even in the imprecatory psalms, is that it's never us taking action against our enemies. It's never us taking it upon ourselves. We're always constantly, it's the author saying, God, I need you to do something about this. I need you to act. I need you to, to work in this. Oftentimes the, author, the authors of these poems are standing, they're petitioning, they're asking and pleading for God to achieve victory and salvation.
Okay? And then finally, what we have is confidence in God to save, which brings about hope and faith. Right? That, the, that lament has to, it must give way to hope, a strong, deep, and robust hope, even in the midst of our, of our suffering. Because again, that's the biblical movement. That's the movement of the whole Psalms. Is it begins with lament and grief and mourning and sadness, and it ends with praise and hope. So that was, that, that was the first question. What do we do with our suffering, our hurts, and our conflicts? Okay, we cry out to God with honesty and hope. The second question is, what do we do with our intense and hard emotions? Because they're here, they're real. What do we do with those? What we see from Psalms of Lament is that we can freely express our raw, honest, and most visceral emotions to an emotional God who listens. God has emotions. He's a supernatural being who has emotions. I sort of grew up with this idea and this worldview of God of like this all-powerful mind who is this person, but, you know, he's stoic and he doesn't really feel things. He's just, he's, he's running the universe by his, his, his powerful thoughts and mind and his wisdom and his will and all his sovereignty. And I am learning more and more that God also, in, in that, he has emotions, he, when we see in verse, or excuse me, in Genesis 6, when right before the story of Noah and the flood, he, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. He was sorry. It brought him sorrow and it grieved him to his heart. So God experiences sadness Micah, Micah chapter 7 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? That's us. Who is a God like you? Who does, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love, anger, delight, joy. So we have an emotional God who has emotions, who is also perfect in all of those emotions. He's not imperfect. He's not uh, impulsive. He's not volatile. Um, he's not moody. He has those emotions. And because we're made in his image, therefore we have emotions, right? And friends, emotions are tools to be used for living fully as humans made in God's image. And this is where I kind of want to bank on this for a second. Emotions in and of themselves are not wrong. They're neutral. They're actually, there's not bad emotions or good emotions. There's intense emotions, there's fear, there's anger, there's shame. There's fun emotions like joy and happiness and laughing. But emotions in and of themselves are not wrong. What you do with them can determine whether it's right or wrong. How you express them, the kind of language that you use and comes out in your emotions can be wrong. But emotions themselves are not wrong. And they're not like this excess material in you to be ignored or discarded or whatever. They're not to be stuffed. They're not to be pushed down. There's something that God gave us. There's something that God gave us to discover what's really going on inside us and under the surface. Um, One author says, who's a Christian counselor, and he wrote a whole book about emotions. He said, feelings... Feelings or emotions are not impulses that need to be controlled. 
They are tools that we need to learn how to use well so that we do not behave impulsively and act out with the ability to take responsibility. With, or excuse me, act out without the ability to take responsibility. They are good because they allow us to process life experience. When your car breaks down, typically you're going to hear a noise. You're going to hear, you're going to see smoke or steam come out of the hood or come out of the exhaust. You're going to smell something, <laughs> typically. That's your car saying, something wrong here. You need to listen to me, Okay. I got some emotions coming out. There's something going on inside that's not right, that doesn't feel right, not all is well. It's the same, same with us. Emotions are sitting under the hood of us, and they're going to come out, right? Especially those hard emotions like grief and sadness, anger, and frustration. The problem is, friends, and here's the hard part, is that in our culture, and I think as Christians, we often do not know how to express in healthy ways our intense, raw emotions. I mean, I just didn't grow up learning how to do that very well. Or we, or, or we, don't, allow, we don't know how to allow people the space and freedom to express them in this culture, and I would say even in the church as a whole. Some of the things that my wife and I have tried to work on in our parenting, uh, by the way, we have three teen daughters, Love them. There's two of them are sitting right here right now. Um, we have three teen daughters, and we say, we tell them, we say, you know what? You're going to have emotional roller coasters. We're very honest about that, right? You're going to have emotional roller coasters because of situations going on in your life, and that's okay. You have the freedom to feel what you feel. I may not get, I may not hitch a ride on that roller coaster every time with you, but as you come around, well, we're going to talk about it, and you'll go up, and then you come around again to the bottom. We'll talk about it, and you go up, and then we'll come around, and in those emotions. The freedom that you have to feel those things, because you're going to feel them, and especially because you're sinful and broken, it's okay to express them, but it's not okay to be disrespectful. It's not okay to project those those negative emotions on us in hurtful ways. That's where the line. That's where the line is drawn, right there. So we want to encourage our daughters, our kids, and our family that you have the freedom to feel what you feel. You're going to have these emotions. It's natural and it's okay. However, it's not okay to project them out in disrespectful ways. And here's the thing: see, there's going to be times for us, and even in the lament poems, there's times where there's actually a couple lament poems here in the Book of Psalms that don't actually end in hope. That the that the suffering and the situation is so hard. And it is so arduous and it is so trialsome that the author is not able to get to a place of hope, at least yet. Okay? The whole book of Psalms ends with hope and praise. But they're not sitting in melancholy and hopelessness, ultimately. But sometimes it just feels like that, right? I mean, sometimes it is so hard, and it's okay to express those emotions. And I want to encourage us that even in that, even in, even in all the hardship of that, to express that to God. And maybe there's going to be some times that because we're sinful and broken, that maybe it comes out in a way that we didn't intend it to, to God. And God is going to handle that because he's a big God. He's powerful. He already knows what's going on in your heart. He's heard every word under the sun. Okay, he's gonna know, he's gonna handle that. 
The goal is that in your anger and your sadness and frustration that you're not sinning. Paul says that in Ephesians. He quotes from Psalm chapter 4, in your anger do not sin. Right? That's the goal. That's the goal. Have your emotions, express your emotions, but don't sin. Maybe there's times where it's going to come out so raw and honest before God. But here's what I encourage you with. Just do it. Be real with God in that. Be real with God. That's what we see in the Psalms here in this book. I'm personally learning how to do that. And there's times where I'm just like, oh man, I don't even know the words because I'm so angry and frustrated. I had a moment like that yesterday that I was dealing with and just some of my, my, own, my own feelings about my family and about parenting and all of that. And I needed to have some time. And it was just appropriate to me preparing for the sermon, even though at times I felt like I was being distracted from, from preparation. But it was good for me to process through that. And there's going to be those situations. Because, look, the Psalms help us navigate and process these situations, these circumstances that come, that happen. And all the suffering and the pain and the hard emotions, right? And there's going to be times that what do you do when the problems around you seem so insurmountable? And you're like, oh, God, how can this person continue to act this way? How can this person in my life that I know, either my family or some friend, continue to behave in this way and the choices that they make? Or how can I, why do I keep struggling with this same sin issue in my life? Why does it keep coming out? How will this ever get fixed? And here's the thing, experiencing and practicing lament will continue to help you to navigate that. But lament in and of itself is not your hope. You cannot lament your way to hope. It is not in and of itself your salvation. And I know sometimes in our popular culture when it comes to music and film and there's this, there's this sort of idea that like if I just sit in melancholy long enough and if I just sit here and feel bad about my life and my situation have all this sort of self-pity and I'm just in this dark place that maybe somehow in some of those emotions I feel some sort of salvation or hope and that doesn't work. It never does. In fact, you can't even put your hope in hope in the idea of hope, which is often what we do. Like, oh, I, just, I just hope this good thing will happen. Based on what? Your hope based on what? The algorithm of the universe? The universe is somehow going to come through for you? No. You can't, your, your hope doesn't lead to more hope. The emotion that comes out of that, you can't hope your way to more hope. Hope in the Bible, in the story of the Bible, is based on someone who is firm, who is strong and unchanging, loving, powerful, and eternal. That's what real hope is. It's based on something that is immovable and unchanging and strong, like a rock, but even greater and better than a rock, a real person. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Look at what David says here. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. What does this tell us about Jesus? Jesus cried out to his father throughout his earthly life. And his father listened. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that in the days of his flesh, in the days of his incarnate life here on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications and petitions with loud cries and tears. Scholars say that Jesus was praying psalms. He was praying lament. 
he cried these he cried out with 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 tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence so the father listened to jesus throughout the days of his life as jesus cried out in lament because of the sin and brokenness around him not because of his own because he was sinless because of the sin and the brokenness that was around him and the father heard him every time except for one the cross And on the cross, Jesus cried out in deep lament, and it did not end with hope or praise. It ended in death. Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. Jesus quoted that when he was hanging on the cross. Because all of my sin and your sin And the sin of the world was placed on him. And because of that, his father turned away from him and forsook him and did not hear his cry. And Jesus died. And the excruciating pain and the unimaginable suffering that he experienced, that he willingly died for you and me, he achieved victory over sin, Satan, and hell so that we might, even in our suffering, believe and have hope. And though it seemed that his enemies had prevailed, though it seemed that Satan had prevailed, Yet through his death and resurrection, he gained victory and brought salvation. My friends, only in the gospel, only in the victory of the Messiah, can we be honest about our sin and brokenness and about what's going on around us in the world, that we can be honest and lament and cry out because of our sin. But we are not left in despair. Only in the gospel can we put our hope in a beautiful restoration of the world. Why? Because we have a sure foundation of Jesus, the Messiah, who through ultimate suffering will one day be victorious. Let's bank on that. That even in your sadness and your pain and your suffering, you have a great Savior. You have an eternal God. Your hope is in Him. Our hope is in Him. And that's the foundation. And you have the freedom to express how you really feel to a God who hears you and listens to you, who's present to you, who's close to you who knows you, who sees you. Let's do that, okay? I'm gonna pray. I'd like to have the worship team come up and we'll lead into communion here. Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for the reality that, um, the reality that we see in this book of poetry here in the Psalms. Thank you that you give us freedom to feel what we feel in the midst of situations that are hard. You give us freedom to cry out to you, to verbalize to you, to not hold back, to not pretend, but to be real. You give us freedom to be sad. You give us freedom to be angry. And in that, Lord, that we would pursue health, that we would pursue a sinlessness toward you, toward each other. You give us freedom because ultimately we have hope in you that you're going to do something about it. At some point, you will do something about it. And we know the end of the story, God, that you, that you will. It's guaranteed. May that bring us hope today and, and right now. And thank you for our continued time of worship, that we can, that we don't even have to 
whatever's going on in our life and the feelings and the things that are that are conf- conflicting in our hearts so that we can respond with joy, we can respond with praise because of you and you alone. We praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. As we move into continu- uh, communion, I just want to encourage you to take advantage of this time to be real and honest with God. Right? You have the freedom to cry out to him because of his unconditional love and grace, because of Jesus. So, the, the band is going to sing a song during that time. Please come forward and take and receive the bread and the cup, and then I'll come up and continue to lead us. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to continue meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.